Good afternoon, church. I'll have to tell you that uh, if y'all remember a few months back, Nathan uh, was about to go on vacation to the uh, island somewhere. And right before he was about to go, I was uh, asked to uh, preach for him because he'd gotten sick right before they left and he thought he wasn't going to be able to preach. So I started studying for this sermon that I have today then. And uh, so I, I got ready and then Adam started uh, feeling sick the next week. And he was supposed to preach that week because Nathan was gone. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to get this preach it then. Well, no, I didn't. So if any of you have ever prepared a sermon before and not been able to preach it, it weighs heavy on you for a while. <laughs> well, this is it, and I hope I don't blow it. <laughs> uh, with all that's gone on in Christendom in the past 20, 30, I'd say even 50 years, it seems like it's getting worse and worse Uh and even in uh, things that have happened in our church have brought some of these things to mind that we're talking about today. And the title of my sermon is The Problem of No Power. Uh, J.I. Packard, uh, who was uh, from a British, I think he's from Britain, uh, a pastor from, uh, he was born 1926, died in uh, 2020. And I remember a statement he made, I think he came through Bellevue at one time and made this statement, or at least I heard it was from him while I was at Bellevue. He said this, Christianity in America is 3,000 miles wide and a half inch deep. That's a condemning statement about Christianity. And if it was bad back then, I'll say it's even worse now. The church didn't start that way though, did it? you go to the book of Acts, and if you want to look, go follow along with me. I start in the book of Acts and kind of do a, a uh, an overview of uh, what was going on in the first few few years. If you get on a timeline, I found out, and I don't know how accurate this timeline is, but somebody came up with these being the, the timeline. Uh, it took four years uh, for the church in uh, Jerusalem to fill all Jerusalem with their teaching. Uh, that was a statement that they were accused of, which would be a great thing to be accused of if we filled all of Memphis with our teaching. And, uh, and then persecution broke out and scattered the church, uh, and they went about preaching the gospel from there. Uh, they started in Acts, uh, the church started in the upper room, Acts 15, or 115, and it says there were 120. So they started with 120 people. And then uh, they received the Holy Spirit, and Peter preaches on the first gospel sermon on that day. And in Acts 2.41, it says 3,000 souls were added. So it was a, a, a great start. There was power in all that. And they became a community of believers having all things in common. They sold their property and their possessions, and they shared with all, and they were continuing in one mind they were in the temple, and they were breaking bread from house to house and taking meals together. And with gladness and sincerity of heart, they were praising. Uh, and then 
Acts 2, 47 says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. People were just seeing this amazing community of people that were believing and trusting and following God, and it was drawing people in. And then it goes on. They continued preaching, doing miracles, and, uh, and the Sadducees arrested them for doing that. And even though they were under the pressure from outside the church to stop, in Acts 4.4, 4, with all that going on, it says, But many of those who heard the message believed that the number, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. And that doesn't include the women and the children. So probably by this time, the church had risen to 10,000 in number. And this is just like in just probably six months. Uh, so Satan saw that he couldn't stop the church with that outside pressure. So he just, he uh, using the Sadducees. So his next attack comes from the inside with Ananias and Sapphira. And that's uh, Acts chapter 12, I mean 5. Uh, and just uh, an overview of Ananias and Sapphira. There was a husband and wife. And they were some of the ones that were selling property and giving it to the church to, for everybody to share. But they did it a little different from everybody else. Uh, it said that they, uh, they sold a piece of property, but they kept back a, a piece of it for themselves, for them, himself, uh, Ananias did. And his wife had full knowledge of this. And bringing the portion of it, they laid it, laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it was remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after you sold it, was it not under your control? Why is it that you've conceived uh, to do this in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And when he heard these words, he fell down and took his last breath and great fear fell upon those who heard it. And then three hours later, uh, Sapphira comes in, his wife. And Peter uh, responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that's what we sold the price for the price. And he said to her, Why is it that you've agreed together to put the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And she fell immediately to their feet and laughed breathed her last breath. And uh, the young men came that found her dead and they carried her outside and buried her with her husband. And great fear fell upon all, the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So God got everybody's attention about what was going on here. And it says, in the hand, and at the hands of the apostles, uh, the hands of the apostles, signs and wonders were taking place among the people and they were all in one accord in Solomon's portico. So the great fear that came upon the church was a fear of reverence. They realized that God was, was uh, one that expected us to do business for him and do it right. 
And so what happened was they, they got uh, more intense in their faith and their walk with the Lord because of that fear. That's a fear of, a holy fear of God that causes you to be humble before him and do according to what he wants you to do. And what did he do? He empowered them with signs and wonders. Uh, and it was taking place around all the people there, the church and the, and, and the uh, non-church. Uh, and then the church was in one accord in Solomon's portico. So they were there as an example that the church was sticking together. It didn't scare them off. It kept them together. Uh, and then it says, but none of them dared associate with him. Well, this is talking about the non-church. You know, if uh, I saw a group over there and God was striking somebody dead within that group, if I wasn't all in on it, I wouldn't be part of it. And that's exactly what was happening. They, uh, they weren't going to associate with them because they were afraid, if I'm not straight with God, then I'm going to be in trouble. And, uh, but even at that, they still held the church in high esteem. Uh, because it was impressive to see what God was doing with them. Uh, And then, verse 14, And all the believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added in number. See how powerful the church was? Just them being together drew people in and they were added. They were added when Peter preached. And then, the more they did more that were added. And finally, when God purified the church by taking out the ones that were uh, not walking according to, to a good relationship with him, pure church became an even more powerful church. They went from addition to multiplication. So, uh, as we look at... Uh, Since God doesn't deal with uh, sin that way today, and I think a lot of us will be glad of that, that he doesn't strike us dead the first time we do something that goes against him. Uh, uh, He doesn't work with the church as dramatically as that today, but uh, he does want the church to work in order to be pure. And he and Jesus even told us that he would he uh, we're to, we're to deal with with sin in the church, uh, and uh, we have worked on that actually from here this year in Matthew eighteen fifteen through twenty, uh, the church is to address sin within the body, and he encourages them to we're to encourage the person that's sinning to repent, and if uh, they're not if they don't respond to the, the person that uh, it comes to their attention, then we have two or more go to, to the same person and talk to him and rebuke him and ask him to repent. And if they refuse after two or three members, then the whole church is called in to call them to repentance. And then if that doesn't uh, work, and then we're to cast them out, which means remove them from, our, from the membership. Uh, and it, that's not the last of what we do with them because we're supposed to continue to try to uh, bring them back to Christ to repent. But we're considering them as a non-believer at that point, and so we're actually there, it's an evangelistic uh, effort by that time. 
and it could be anywhere along the way. But, uh, and then uh, Jesus also taught us that uh, there's false converts out there and that we shouldn't be surprised. Uh, and he told us in the uh, parable of uh, the wheat and the tares, which is Matthew thirteen twenty four through thirty, uh, and we find that you know there's uh, counterfeit converts, so we shouldn't be surprised that that would weaken the church, of course. And then in Matthew uh, seven fifteen, we we find out about uh false prophets and those people will also weaken the church it says beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves who will know them by you will know them by their fruits grapes are not gathered from bushes nor figs from thistles are they even so good every good tree bears good fruit but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce good bad fruit, and a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then that you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone says to me who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name or in your name cast out demons or in your name perform miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That is probably one of the scariest verses in the Bible where it says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and in your name perform miracles? And on that day, I'll declare to them, I never knew you. See, there are some around that think that they're doing the Lord's work when in reality, they're not. God doesn't want his children to walk in sin. And he doesn't want counterfeit Christians or false prophets. Uh, and he's, it's not been that way just with the church, but it's been all, that way all the way back to uh, when the nation of Israel was, uh, was being formed. Uh, God gave the Ten Commandments, and he made a clear point that, to his chosen people that he didn't want them to, uh, how he wanted them to be. In Deuteronomy 5.11, which is the third commandment, all right, any of y'all know the third commandment right off the top of your head? I'm not going to ask you to say it. The third commandment, uh, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. For most of my life, I was taught that that commandment was about not cursing. I imagine most of you heard it that way too, right? Um, and, uh, you know, don't say things like, GD, uh, 
or being flippant in the name and using the name of God or Jesus. In a sense, that's true. With that, that's part, uh, underlying part of that meaning. Uh, but there's a much more to that command than just that. The key to understanding the command is to understand what the Lord means by saying, take the name of the Lord. And the Hebrew word for take in this, in this command is nasay, N-A-S-A. It means to bear or to carry or to lift up in status. Israel was a group of people that God had chosen from all the nations after he separated them at the Tower of Babel. And Israel was chosen to represent him to the world. Uh, They were to take his name and be his representatives. And when they weren't serious about being his representatives, they were going to be judged. And uh, could it be like that in the church today? We're chosen of God uh, but we're weak and ineffective because we're not representing him properly. Have we taken his name in vain? So how do we know what the proper way of bearing his name looks like? And uh, that's where we come to our text for today that uh, Trenton read for us. Thank you, Trenton. Uh, Jesus tells us in John 15, 1 through 17 what it looks like for somebody to bear his name. The night before his crucifixion and these final hours that he had to teach them, Jesus makes it crystal clear to them uh, how they should represent him in the world. He was leaving them uh, with his plan to bring the world to himself. Uh, The mission was his priority and, and now it was going to be their priority. He was telling them how to personally function in the world in order to fulfill their new role as his ambassadors. He explained it to them and to us in the uh, illustration he used of the vine and the branches in John 15, 1 through 17. And I've uh, broken the this into two parts, and it's probably in uh, paragraphs in, in your Bible. It wasn't mine. 1 through 12, he is explaining how our relationship with him works. And then in verses 13 through 17, the application of this relationship and how we reach the world. Uh, and as I've gone through these verses over the several months now, it's become clear to me Uh, what a true representative of Christ looks like. And my prayer is that uh, it will become clear to you as we look through this today. And so, uh, since it was pretty much a Bible study for myself, uh, it's going to be kind of like we're going to do a Bible study today with it. Uh, So it's going to be a little more, a little less formal than uh, I would with a another sermon, but let's look, if you would, in John 15, verses 1 through 17, and we're just going to go through it verse by verse, okay? So follow along with me in your Bible. And we're going to go kind of slow, but shoot, i got a lot of time left, (laughs) so we're good. Uh, John 15, 1 through 17. 
This is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the vine, the true vine. Okay, what's the true vine? The vine, what is the vine? The vine is the plant that's in the ground that brings life to, up from the ground to the, to the branches. And so uh, Jesus says, I am the true vine. Uh, so Jesus is the life giver. And my father is the vine dresser. Well, the vine dresser is, another word for that is the husbandman or it could be the farmer. It's the one that works the ground at, to, to make the produce. And then he, 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 so he not only created us, planted us, but he's also uh, molding and making us and, uh, and helping us to continue and be healthy. So there's the first two uh, characters in this. And then it says every branch. So the branches are us. We're the branches that are, and it says in me or on the vine, in the vine. And literally as Gentiles, we're branches that were what? Grafted into the vine, right? Paul says it about an olive tree. We were grafted into an olive tree, but the same principle applies. We're grafted into this vine. When a branch is grafted into the vine, it's sitting out there by itself. It has no life. But when it gets grafted in, life starts flowing through it, right? So that's what we are. We're the uh, grafted into the vine. And it says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I've heard it taught that... uh, there's two kinds of branches. There are branches that uh, don't bear fruit, and then there's branches that do. Uh, and it addresses that in a little bit, but, uh, and the way it was taught was if you're not bearing fruit, uh, then uh, you're not a truly uh, believer, and you're not saved, and you uh, uh, are a, a false Christian. And it does in... Uh, if uh, uh, later on in verse six, it talks about branches that are have, uh, are th- are withered and thrown away and burned, and we'll get to that in a minute. So there there are other branches, and that's uh, but in this verse where it says every branch in me does not bear fruit, he takes away. First of all, if you're in him. Uh, why would he? Would he? Would he? Would you? He, would he have someone in him that doesn't belong to him? That he's not nurturing and feeding and taking care of. So, I I state that these branches are truly believers in in the Lord. And when it says every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Our purpose is to bear fruit. So what does take away mean? The word take away means to, literally if you look up the definition in Strong's, it's to lift up, to pick up, to hold up. Where is Jesus when he's uh, doing this? He's walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. They're passing through vineyards on the way. 
He's using the vineyard that he's walking through as an illustration for what he's teaching here, right? So he's looking over here and he says, see this branch on the ground down here? It's falling down. It's out of the sunlight because the other branches are, are blocking the light. It's down there on the ground. There's dirt on the ground and it's getting on the branch. So it's, it's not going to thrive. As a matter of fact, it's going uh, it's, it's to die down there on the ground. And so he picks it up, and then he, he says, what's he say next? And every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes. And that word prune is to, means to clean up, to uh, take away what's unnecessary. When I think about this in my life, in my relationship with Christ, when I came to him, I was in the, dirt, in the world, down in the filth of the world. And what did God do? He picked me up out of that. He brushed me off. He cleaned me up. He took away the things that were not helpful for me to grow in him. He's still doing that with me. So this is a picture of us being in him and him in us. That's the next thing that happens, as a matter of fact. He says, first of all, he says, I've already cleaned you because of the word I've spoken to you. When you come to Christ, you hear the gospel. When you hear the gospel... And you really hear it when God enlightens you to what it really means. You go, wow. And this changed your, This is changing my life because I'm not going to trust in myself anymore. I'm going to trust in him for life. And, uh, and so that word came to a spoken word from him, which we have as his written word now. It comes to us and he... Uh, he says, uh, you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. When, you're, when you come to Christ, what happens to all your sins? They're taken away. He paid for them. You are cleansed from all your sins so that you have a new life with him. New life, when his life throw, flows through you, it can be productive. And uh, so he's saying, you're already clean because I've... He picked them up out of the world and helped clean them off, and now they're they're there here clean. They're there with him clean. Uh, and he says, "So when when I pick you up out of the world and I clean you up, he says, you, it, it's an automatic process, pretty much that you're you're taken care of in the, in all that respect. And so when you are that way." That, that's going through your justification part and is in your salvation. And then the next part is your, is your sanctification part, which he says, abide in me and I in you. Uh, and that's our relationship with Christ. Uh, he says, abide in me. The word abide there is the Greek word minnow. And minnow means to... Uh, Stay to uh, stay in the presence of something to uh, take up residence somewhere. It's a word that was used like when uh, Jesus was traveling uh, to Jerusalem. He stopped in with Lazarus and Martha and Mary at their house, and it says he stayed for a while. That word "stayed" is minnow. He took up residence with them. They were living with 
he was living with them, they were living with him, so it was that relationship going on there. And that's what he says. We're supposed to, he's supposed to live in us, and we're supposed to live in him. Uh, and so he says, abide in me, and I in you. It's like a, when you wash your car and you get a big bucket of water, and you got your sponge to wash you, wash your car, you throw the sponge in the water, it sits there, and they get together. What happens? Is the water in the sponge, or is the sponge in the water? It's both. It's a, it's a concurrence. Our life with Christ is a concurrence. We're in him. He's in us. You can't hardly separate the two. Uh, you shouldn't separate the two, as a matter of fact. Uh, as a, and it says, as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself... Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Well, that makes sense. If he's the one giving us life and giving us everything we need to do what he wants us to do, if we're not abiding in him, we're not going to produce anything. And so uh, notice it's going, it went from no fruit to bear fruit. And now that you see you bear fruit because you're in him and he's in you and you've got this relationship going. So it's a progression going on of how this life in Christ looks. <clears throat> and he says, I am the vine, you are the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. As you continue to bear fruit, you'll bear more fruit and more fruit, which turns into much fruit. But remember, unless you're in him and he's in you, it's not going to happen. So we need to keep that relationship tight all the time. <clears throat> if anyone does not abide in me, and see, there's, here's what I was talking about. If it's a, a branch that's dead, that didn't take the nourishment coming, coming in to, from Christ, it's going to be dead and withered, right? It says, the vine... Uh, if anyone in me does, abides in me and if anyone does not abide in me and he is thrown away like a branch that withers <clears throat> and, and the branches are gathered and are thrown into the fire and burned. And the word there for thrown away there is, uh, is where it says takes away the branches on the ground and cleaned up. This is thrown away and that's like to be thrown out the door into the trash heap. And so there, there's the difference there in that. Uh, and it's, it's thrown in the fire and burned, which uh, kind of gives us the inclination that it could be that there's a, uh, an end in them that's not what anybody wants as in hell. But if you abide in me, and they, next level, we're stepping up now. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, and that's when we start getting God's word into us. We, we're saved. We start growing. We start producing fruit because he's changing us. Just like that church, the first church, they were with each other and he was working in them. And just their presence was bringing people to Christ. You know, when Jesus is abiding in you and you're abiding in him, just that much is enough to influence people towards Christ. But now it's going to go further. It says, if anyone... Uh, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, those words get in you and they start changing the way you think, right? They replace, 
some of that stinking thinking you got for the Word of God. And as that happens, you're starting to think more like God thinks. Uh, and what happens with that, you're going to bear uh, uh, much fruit. So you're going from no fruit to some fruit to much fruit. And when you start bearing fruit like that, you're proving to be his disciples. His disciples uh, are what? They're, a disciple is who's being taught by a teacher, right? And the, the disciple is never greater than the teacher, but when they're fully grown, they'll be like their teacher. And he says, you're becoming more like me. And so when the more you come like me, the more fruit you're going to bear. And as the Father, uh, he says, go on, as the Father loved me, uh, oh, it, it says, uh, abide in me and my words abide in me and do whatever, and whatever you ask, it will be done for you. And uh, that, that also makes sense when you think about it. If God's word is getting in us, and we're abiding in Christ, and His Word's abiding in us, we're starting to think like Christ. And so whatever we're thinking about is what God is all about anyway. And so it's going to cause us to, uh, whatever we ask will be what God's wanting anyway, right? And is He going to give us what He wants? Absolutely. So uh, uh, that moves us to the, another level of a tighter relationship with the Lord and the, and the Father. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So this glorifies God because we're in a relationship with His beloved Son and it's showing up as He's changing us into the likeness of Himself. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How much did the Father love the Son? To the utmost. To the uttermost. If there's any way to gauge love on a 1 to 10 basis, it's a 10. How much does Jesus love us? As much as the Father loved the Son. And He wants us to be in a relationship where we grow to the point where we're emulating him to the world. Uh, they're seeing the world sees Jesus through us. And it goes on to say, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Well, where did that come from? Well, they came from the word. If the word's in us and we're in the word and we're in him, his commandments are in his word and his commandments will start coming out as something we do. And uh, so if you keep my commandments, uh, you will abide in my love. And so we've, we've gone to from just being taken up and being in him to him. We're in him and he's in us. And now the word's in us and... We're starting to think like God and do, uh, or think like Christ and do like Christ, and we're being obedient. And He says, uh, 
He said, uh, when, you do, when you do that, uh, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the commandments and abide in my Father's love. What did Jesus say he did when he was here on earth? He said, I don't do anything on my own. I only do what the Father tells me and what he empowers me to do. As we dive deeper and deeper into our love and, and life in Christ, we'll find ourselves in a love relationship with him, which will cause us to do whatever he, he's asked us to do. And we'll see uh, him do great things in that. And when we do that, he's going to love us. We're going to love him. And a love relationship like this has a lot of uh, dividends on our part. But the main one is these things, he said he spoke to us, if we're in this kind of relationship, he said that so that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. If you have ever found yourself in a position where you know that you were doing exactly what God wanted, I can't imagine. I've never. I've had that happening with me some from time to time, and the joy that I have in that is unspeakable. You know that you are right where you're supposed to be in His plan. So, as you grow in this, you will become. A person that is following him, doing what he says, and literally living with him in that relationship where you're mentoring with him there, where you are taking up residence and he's in, you're living together with Christ all the time. It makes a life full of joy. And joy is, uh, let me get my, come on. Joy is a, uh, it's just, it's called a, an occasion of rejoicing in my definition. I was looking for the right definition I had for it. A, an occasion of rejoicing. What's uh, it's an occasion for rejoicing when you're abiding in him and him and you, the occasion is all the time, first of all. That's why it's full. And the other thing is when it's rejoicing, it's re means over and over and over again. You're full of joy. So your life is filled with joy. So that's why it's full. It's full to the overflowing. Uh, and so that tells us an explanation of how our relationship can be full in Christ. is through a life that's being changed in this way continually. And then uh, verses 12 through 17 are where we look into uh, how this is applied in our lives. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. So he was talking about before that if you're abiding in his love, then he's loving you. And so we need to not take it from him, but we're going to take it outside to others. So we're loving one another like he loved us. And then uh, in case you don't know how he loved us, 
he gives us a, the definition in the next verse. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. What did Jesus do for us? He laid down his life for us. And what does he want us to do with our friends? Who are our friends first? It's the next person sitting next to you. It's the person that you, any person you come in contact with. It's just really the people of the world. If you are, if you would lay down your life, and that's what that means is die to yourself so that you can do what is best for them. Because if your life gets in the way of you serving somebody else, you haven't died to it. But when you die to yourself, then you can easily do something for someone else and show them the layer of love. And what are we loving them with? We're loving them with actions that are the most beneficial for them. Uh, and he goes on to say, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So we're going to another level of this relationship. We've gone from just being, getting into in him and us and us and him and his word and then it became a love relationship, but now we've gone from that to a friendship with him. Uh, there's a song, What I Have, Friend I Have in Jesus. You can sing that sometime for us, won't you? <laughs> uh, and you're only his friend if you do what he commands you. You know, he's, he does have the authority over us to command us to do things, but are his commands burdensome? No. They're what they do is they bring you joy and they bring him joy and they glorify the Father. So he says, no longer do I call you servants for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You know, when you get this close to Jesus where you're in a friendship relation because you're being obedient to his commands, you're going to know what the Father wants because he's told it to you. He's opened up his word to you where you understand all these things. And it's going to help you to be even closer to God the Father and God the Son. And then he says, in case you think you're going to do this on your own, (laughs) he throws this in here for us. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. Some, some, some uh, versions say um, remain. And it is it does remain. Fruit here is uh, fruit here is the Hebrew as it comes from the Hebrew word of fruit of the womb. It's offspring. This is talking about as you do this, you're going to be bringing people to the Lord. When you have a life like this, it's going to happen. It's, uh, it's a natural outflow of that. It's the fruit that God 
brings out of you through that. That's why the church, the early church was, they didn't, they weren't working at it. It was working from their relationship with the Lord. The same thing with us. Our relationship will bring fruit when we get tight with the Lord like this. It says, uh, so he says, uh, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Remember, when the word gets in you and you're being obedient, whatever you ask, he's going to do. Well, there it is again. He's, it, and whatever you ask, he's going to give it to you. Uh, and he says, finally, these things I command you so that you will love one another. As a community, we're supposed to be loving each other, encouraging each other, getting out there with each other, and showing our love for one another and our love for the world and making a, an impact for him for eternity. So, what do we do with all this? to examine ourselves. First question you should ask is are you in are you in the vine? Are you born again? Have you been grafted into the family? Do you abide in him or is that where you your life is found in him? And is he abiding in you? Is he really living in you causing you to uh, grow in him and is his word abiding in you so that it becomes alive in you and it changes the way you think and you act uh, to the point it becomes a love relationship between you and Christ and you're wanting to just obey every commandment that he that, he, that, he's, that you understand from him and you're dying to yourself and fellow man so that you can bear fruit and then by this loving each other. So we need to all examine ourselves to see if that's going on in our lives. Uh, and if it's not going on in your life, it could be that you've never been grafted into the vine. That you're not, uh, you haven't uh, been born again. You're, uh, and that's the first step that has to come. Uh, you have to have faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, realizing that you've made, uh, you can't bring yourself out of this. It's only Christ who died for your sins that can bring you through this life into a, a newness of life. And that you've got to be willing to repent and follow Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And how clear it has become to me, I pray that it is clear to these that hear it today, Lord, that we've got to be in you. We must be abiding in you and you in us. And that we need to be growing, knowing your word, 